Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Today, we're going to tackle a serious topic, drugs in the workplace. Substance abuse is a human problem and therefore has been a human resources problem for a long time. Recent years have seen the issue pushed to the forefront, primarily because of the opioid epidemic. Like many drugs, opioids are extremely dangerous. And if your organization hasn't had a situation yet, the expansion of the epidemic makes it fairly likely that you will. So today we're joined by two attorneys that have a lot of experience surrounding these issues. Today we're joined by Dale L. Deitchler, shareholder at Littler. He represents management in all phases of labor law, labor relations, and standards. Dale also counsels clients on a a wide variety of employment law issues, offering advice and practical solutions about the Family and Medical Leave Act, discipline and discharge, employment discrimination, employment and non-competition agreements, and unemployment compensation. We're also joined by Jeffrey E. Dilger. He represents and counsels clients in a broad range of labor matters, including unfair labor practice proceedings before the National Labor Relations Board, labor arbitration, labor negotiations, and NLRB elections. In addition to a robust labor law practice, Jeff routinely counsels clients in the ever-evolving field of federal and state drug and alcohol testing laws. Jeff's practice includes assisting clients with all aspects of drug and alcohol testing programs, including creation, implementation, and enforcement. Let me thank both of you for being here today to discuss this complex topic. You're welcome. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Excellent. Let's jump right in. Um, you know, we've all heard about the opioid issue, and I think that that creates a lot of fear, um, you know, for lots of people, for lots of different reasons, but it should be creating fear for employers uh, when it comes to drugs in the workplace. Uh, Can you guys just sort of talk about some examples of what those fears might be? Sure. I mean, the, the biggest fear is, and the number one driving force behind workplace substance abuse and testing programs is catastrophic loss. So if someone, regardless of the substance, but opioids is is uh, trending, if someone comes to work impaired by illegal drugs or alcohol even, uh, there's the potential for significant irreparable and catastrophic loss. And um, so substance abuse and testing programs are tools that employers utilize to try to minimize that safety risk. All employers have a general duty to maintain a safe work environment under OSHA and other laws. And um, because of the prevalence of uh, impairment from drug use in the workplace, a, a lot of employers have adopted rigid rules about impairment and in order to enforce those rules, testing programs. Um, If you look at, um, 
and this is well founded. I mean, if you if you look at reports from Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, talks about the prevalence of drug use. They issue annual reports, you know, in which in which they discuss millions of workers having used um, illegal drugs or alcohol within the previous thirty days. So there are uh, substance abusers in the workplace. And particularly if you have safety sensitive work, someone's using, uh, you know, operating heavy equipment or they're on a conveyor line or, you know, you know, they're driving a forklift. That's of great concern to most employers and they don't want to step in the wrong direction on, you know, taking a chance that someone who's impaired or abusing substances is is in the workplace doing that kind of work. Yeah, that's a a really good point, um, especially as you mentioned in the safety field. Um, but there's other ways that someone that's you know abusing substances can cost a company money, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> there's also published studies about um, higher rates of work-related accidents. Uh, attendance, uh, you know, spotty attendance. There's always a ramp up on um, hiring costs and um, substance abusers are more likely to have shorter tenure in employment. So you're, you're plugging in sunk costs on hiring for someone who may not be with you for terribly long. So there are multiple impacts from someone who's abusing substances if, if they are hired and employed by your organization. I imagine that uh, theft is also a concern. Has that been something that you've had to deal with? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I see theft as a secondary issue with substance abusers, um, you know, but it certainly comes up. I mean, hand in hand with that, let's not let's not just focus on impairment, but you also have the issue of potential illegal activity in the workplace, which you, of course, most employers don't want. They don't want to have to engage law enforcement uh, if they if they can avoid it. But if there's dealing or buying in the workplace, you know, and if there's an economic barrier to someone buying yeah i mean to to take this full circle there could be a theft situation and of course i mean all you have to do is read the headlines um you know people are overdosing in the workplace and then what do you do you know what's your what's your osha reporting obligation if any you know when they overdose what are you going to do to try to save lives if anything um, you know, a lot of companies are looking, particularly with the opioid issue, at purchasing and um, purchasing Narcon, which is an antidote to heroin and opioid types of overdoses, and training their supervisory staff um, in the process to administer that antidote. I mean, there is some risk to doing that, and. The risk is similar to what employers have seen for decades with defibrillators, which is, 
there are all these good Samaritan laws out there. And if you undertake a duty to try to provide some first aid or, you know, emergency relief to someone who's overdosed and you screw it up, <laughs> there is some potential exposure for your organization. If you've undertaken that duty and you haven't properly secured the appropriate kit or antidote and the supervisors have not been properly trained. But, you know, I mean, o overdoses in the workplace are uh, rising and of serious concerns to most of the clients that we advise. Yeah, I mean, understandably, um, yeah, we do, we do see that in the news all the time, you know, and I can, it's just a, a complex world to be in where, you know, the, the, maybe the same person that's there to administer, you know, life-saving techniques for someone that's had a heart attack or something to have to also be able to grab, you know, this, this drug, this anti-drug and, uh, and rescue someone. I mean, the idea of that makes me afraid, you know, or of using it on the wrong person or, you know, so I can imagine that there would be a lot of, a lot of really intense training that comes along with that kind of, kind of responsibility. Yeah, I would not, I mean, my thought on that is one of the, one of the considerations would be, I'm going to tell my various insurance carriers what I'm doing, because I don't want to be in a scenario where. I've decided I'm going to do this, and then it there's meltdown on the actual administration of it, and you know there's some kind of claim because it wasn't properly administered, and then my carrier says we didn't know you were doing that, <laughs> you know, so sorry, but we're not going to cover the the loss that resulted from your misstep, so. so that at a minimum would be one due diligence step that I would take before I would just be all in on, you know, pursuing Narcan as an antidote and, you know, having supervisors prepared to administer it. Um, are there any, any other things that people should, should do to, uh, to prepare themselves for sort of saying, you know, starting to having Narcan at the, at the company? Well, consistent with some of the articles Jeff and I have written, I mean, it's all about, um, you know, the supervisors need to be aware of potential indicia of impairment. So they need to be trained so that they recognize if someone's maybe moving a little bit slow, slur in speech, maybe they're incoherent, they're, they're staggering, any and all mental and physical indicators of impairment should be things that employers train their supervisors on so that whether or not a drug or alcohol test is performed, they can manage behavior. Um, there's also, which I think is very effective, um, th there's the potential to adopt carefully tailored prescription drug policies that would require reporting if someone is using a prescription drug 
that could create a safety issue. What you don't want to do is have them initially report the drug or the underlying medical condition. Right. But you reserve the right to ask about the drug or the underlying medical condition in order to determine when the person can safely uh, return to work or if they're in need of some reasonable accommodation. And depending on what you learn from implementation and administration of that kind of policy, if someone's you know operating a big crane down in Texas, you may say, we, we, we're not going to just stop with you providing this information. We need more information because the stakes are just too high. So we're going to have a conversation with you about this drug you're using. And we may need to engage the, the healthcare provider that's prescribed it for you. And ultimately, we may need some kind of fit for duty examination from you pardon me, from the health, the supporting healthcare provider, or even from our own independent medical examiner on questions like your ability to safely perform the essential functions of your job, uh, whether you pose an undue risk of harm while you're performing that job, and, you know, issues such as, is there a certain amount of time prior to the inception of safety sensitive work that this person should uh, refrain from using hydrocodone. Well, I, I was, I was actually just going to add that, you know, for Dale and I, you know, we can talk about Narcan and, and obviously that is something that some employers, you know, can consider and will implement, but really the first line of defense are the policies that, that Dale's been discussing, which, which, provide, you know, an earlier uh, glimpse to the potential problem, right? Both with regards to prescription drug reporting and also the supervisor training. I mean, those are more first line responses. <laughs> you don't really want to be in a situation where you're relying upon the Narcan and those first line policies really uh, help prevent that from happening or take a step in the right direction. Yeah, and the, the first-line policies are not just prescription. I mean, there's multiple possibilities. There's multiple strategies here, and it all depends on the facts. So you've got prescription drug reporting as one possibility. Uh, you may have a policy on voluntary self-disclosures because you want to um, ferret out and motivate people to seek help before there are issues. Uh, obviously, testing is an option. Um, there's also um, inspections and searches policies. You, you know, you want to extinguish an expectation of privacy when you come into the workplace. So you tell people if we have, you know, suspicion that you've, you know, you've violated our drug and alcohol rules, you know, including showing up to work impaired, that we, we reserve the right to inspect personal items, work areas, you know, vehicles, etc. So inspections and searches is, is another one of the arrows in your quiver. Um, part of that could be, if, you're, if you ever want to do it, engaging a vendor, a reliable vendor on drug-sniffing dogs. Um, in the extreme, we've had clients, again, it's delicate, but if you're aware of a, you know, a pervasive drug issue in the workplace, we've had clients retain 
uh, outside, you know, PI vendors who will plant um, employees in the work, you know, quote, employees, end quote, in the workplace to conduct some kind of undercover investigation. So it all depends on the facts. It depends on the nature of the work and, you know, whether there is some palpable drug issue uh, uh, in play within your workplace. That's, that's a, those are all great, great ideas. I, uh, I've heard some of them, but I think some of them were, were new to me, particularly the undercover um, private eye type of investigation. Um, I could see that being, you know, a, a valuable tool, especially at, you know, like a organization that deals with Department of Defense stuff or government contracts or deals with children or something like that. I mean, just as examples. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, we've had we've had clients, I've had several manufacturers who have done that because they they had heard, you know, credible reports of the sale of drugs in the workplace. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, when I was talking to this expert uh, last year, um, I was at Sherm. I, I forget his name, but he was talking about how companies that don't do pre-employment drug testing are known amongst the communities of drug users, you know, and how they've had clients that because they didn't want to have a policy, uh, a drug testing policy, uh, the people that are drug users all talk to each other and say, hey, I know where you can get a job and you don't have to get tested. You know, there's a culture there and it would be naive to think that that culture couldn't exist in an organization. Yeah, I mean, it all depends on the business because, I mean, I've I've helped many clients that are, I mean, there's a lot of clients that are moving away from pre-employment drug testing entirely because they have a, they can't, <laughs> they have a labor pool issue and end up screen, they, they can't get enough people that are capable of passing a drug test. We also have, you know, IT clients, uh, marketing or white collar professional sorts of jobs, you know, financial investment, et cetera, et cetera, that they just say, we're not in a high risk industry. So, you know, we're not going to do pre-employment or we're not going to test at all. And it's, the stakes are obviously different than if you've got, you know, people who drive every day for their job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you what? Let's talk about what happens when there is an emergency. What are some of the steps employers should take um, in the case of a in the case of a drug emergency? Well, I mean, if the if the emergency is medical, uh, and let's not forget, there are some employers that do post accident drug and alcohol testing. Right. I mean, the focus cannot be the test. The, the focus cannot be anything other than getting the person the, 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 the best and most effective and immediate medical treatment. And, and you know, afterwards, I mean, it's, it's everything from any kind of first aid training that you've provided to ensuring that you, that someone calls 911 if there's any doubt about that person's um, safety. Right. 
Um, what about legally speaking? Um, say after that person is, you know, after the situation, the immediate medical situation is handled. Well, it depends on on what. Again, all of this stuff is fact based. Right. So, if if you know, if at the time someone has, um, you know, collapses, for example, if there is any kind of substance that is present or nearby, um, the 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 best advice is to call the police, because what you don't want is you don't want your company potentially being in possession of a controlled substance and putting the company in a criminal law posture. Now, the police may say, flush it down the toilet, we don't care. Or they may say something else, but you certainly don't want to. I've had clients whom I've dissuaded who say, we want to send that, we want to get that, and we want to send that substance into a lab for testing. And my response is, no, you don't. Because you don't, again, not only being in possession, but transporting a potentially illegal substance is not where you want to be. Um, so if there is suspected, there, is, there are even some states, like Colorado, where if there's suspect, suspected um, illegal activity, you know, there's a law in that state, and there may be similar laws in other states that require you to contact law enforcement. Yeah, it's um, those are that's a really good good advice. Um, I never would have, I never would have thought about you know the immediate after you know something falls out of someone's pocket, you know, um, what do you do? Uh, probably the police would have come come to mind, but it's a I think that's really valuable. Um, yeah, I mean the later the later harder questions are going to be, what are you going to do with the person? You know, they're in the hospital for you know a short period of time at least you know what does what what does the conduct bear in terms of either disciplinary or rehabilitative action and you know as a young employment lawyer you you go through a very quick checklist is it union if it's union you're going to your your you know ability to act may be limited under just cause principles uh, you know have we had any prior notice that this person claims some kind of disabled protected status you know because there may be a reasonable accommodation obligation you know did they hurt anyone when before they were taken out or collapsed because that should matter shouldn't be able to come into work impaired and and cause harm to someone else or even company equipment what rules have been violated? You know, what have we done in comparable circumstances? Yeah. Um, and we were talking about prevention, you know, um, ways to proactively avoid drug, a drug issue at all. But, you know, you can only do so much. Um, you could do all the testing in the world and, and miss somebody that isn't a drug user yet or someone that's good at hiding their drug use. You know, so what? how should employers be able to deal with the situation between the beginning and trying to prevent drug problems in the first place and an OD situation, you know, where an employee is at an onset of a problem? 
you know, I, uh, Jeff may have other ideas, but I think we've hit just about everything that you want in place. I mean, the only other, I'm sort of, you know, I've seen it all and sort of brainstorming here. I mean, <laughs> there are some, you know, with some risk, there are some companies that also encourage co-workers to sort of, I'll use a vernacular term, sort of narc on people if they think that there's a substance abuse issue. And there are morale issues surrounding doing something like Certainly. that. But, you know, the, the, the first observers, you know, or responders or whatever you want to call them, in many cases may be the person working side by side with someone else and, and management may never know. Right. So, or, you know, a lot of companies, as, as we all know, have hotlines, right? Mm. So if, you know, one avenue for coworker reports might be a hotline so that at least you shield the person from, um, you shield the person from any direct retaliation or scrutiny that might come into play. The downside to a hotline is that a lot of times at least initially, the employer will not know what you know how or whether to evaluate the credibility of the person reporting. Right. And it could be a vendetta, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, someone has an axe to grind that's reporting Jeff for you know illegal drug use in the workplace. But you know, if when you're dealing with the people that are actually you know, shoulder to shoulder with the abuser, they're going to know before anyone else. Yeah. A, uh, one of the experts that I talked with, you know, said an interesting thing to me, which is that um, it takes about five years for a person that has a substance abuse problem to lose their job. And that, what I mean is five years before they lost their job, they've lost their friends, they've lost their family, perhaps their possessions. Um, you know, as someone with a serious drug issue, that it's inevitable that their life is going to end. You know, the their professional world is going to end. You know, it's just it's always crazy to me that five years can go by um, without anyone really knowing. And you know, other people I've talked to have said the same thing you just said, which is that well, there are people that know. There's the coworkers know, and it's just such a testament to how complex this issue is that someone could know that someone is struggling with a substance abuse problem for five years at an organization and the people that can make the decisions to do something about it uh, could could not know. Well, there obviously are friendships, work-related work friendships that people want to protect. And so, you know, and you don't want to be the one that is identified as the... the um, what's the term I'm looking for the weasel right you know the you know the uh, uh, I, I'm drawing a blank but you know what I mean <laughs> you don't want to be identified as the one that drew this out and caused the person to lose their job right. right on the other hand if I'm you know again if I know the forklift driver is you know jacked up on meth I mean, it seems to me, I don't care what the quality of the friendship is. That's something that everyone would have a vested interest in management knowing about. And I, I mean, what I would just say is that, you know, when Dale and I are working with clients, it's about 
doing what you can, right? And and that that comes with what we talked about previously. I mean, supervisor training is is obviously a, a great first line of defense. The policies related to you know employees essentially feeling comfortable uh, with reporting people that are impaired in the workplace. And like Dale said, I mean, part of this is also just a it's a company culture issue, right? I mean, people, employees certainly should feel like they need to um, hopefully report people that are impaired, that are creating safety hazards to themselves and others um, in the workplace. And that's really the best way of, of dealing with it up front. And I mean, and obviously there's all the other things that Dale has, has talked about in terms of testing and, and inspections, but it really comes down to people. I mean, people are the best line, uh, first line of defense, either supervisors or employees. I mean, I would I would also say on that coworker issue, and we've got we've got a lot of clients who would just say, again, it, it, if it's not safety sensitive work, then a lot a lot of what we're talking about doesn't matter to them from a business perspective. Right. right. Yep. You know, so if someone used on a Saturday, and you know let's say, you know, or a Friday night, they don't care what happens Monday morning as long as they don't come to work screwed up. Right. Yeah, it's, um, I think we're seeing a lot of, a lot of uh, an evolution in the way that people look at drug use in hand in hand with the, you know, legalization of marijuana in particular. You know, this is a group of people that are not typically viewed as being dangerous. Um, in the way in the way that I mean they certainly can be but in a way that uh, the so-called hardcore drugs are you know and it's, I know a lot of people are having to reevaluate how they look at drug use I, I've also read that thing where people are just ignoring ignoring certain testing results so that they can get get employees in the door yeah I mean on the other hand you know we've got construction clients up in the northeast that I mean they're all over this, right? On, on, on particularly the Narcan thing, uh, but I would say nationwide. I mean, even where there may be some employment law risk, if there hasn't been one thousand percent compliance, you know, you're in the construction industry or uh, mining or some other high risk industry. You know, the risk management and safety people at those kinds of organizations are, you know often and frequently interested in you know, whatever they can throw at this problem. Right, right. And the thing is, if you get the information, you can't just sit on it. So if it's if it's your nephew or, you know, someone who you've known for 20 years, you know, from a man the management side of this, you can't just ignore it. You've got to do something. If you ignore it, if you if you don't know about it, you know, your exposure on a catastrophic loss claim is going to be different than if you know about it and you do nothing. That's exactly right. That's ex I mean, ignoring, for example, a drug test result because it's inconvenient to you is is far worse <laughs> than just not testing for it in the Correct. first place. I mean, they are they are completely different worlds from a legal liability standpoint. That's a great point. Um, you can tell that I'm not an employment lawyer. <laughs> um, well, guys, I think this has been really interesting. I, I know that our audience will, will enjoy it. It's a nice perspective on this. A lot of what we read is just, you know, what we publish is just, you know, people are, are dying. And 
it's you know it's from very much from like a human human being element not not that that's absent here um but it's just good to sort of root these things in, in employment employment issues so i really appreciate both of you uh joining me today to talk about this you're welcome it's uh, we eat live and breathe this stuff so we appreciate the opportunity exactly thank you very much yeah absolutely uh, you're both most welcome um, listeners, we are always interested in any suggestions that you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast, or even if you just have any thoughts or concerns or you just want to say hi, um, that would be great too. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.